Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Today's episode is hosted by James and Carl. They talk to Chris Kirsch, co-founder and CEO of Run Zero, about the ethics and philosophy behind social engineering, the amount of research that goes into the DEF CON Capture the Flag competition, how to protect yourself from open source intelligence manipulation. Follow the human side of cybersecurity with the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Run Zero, um, which is an asset inventory company that I founded with uh, my friend and former colleague and current colleague again, HD Moore, who's uh, one of the creators of uh, or the creator of Metasploit. Yeah, but I, I got into security, God, long time ago. As as long as I can think back. Every time when I uh, went into a bank, uh, I looked at the security systems and like thought about like how would I rob this bank and how would I uh, you know overcome these systems. So wh- when your mind works like that, you have two paths in life: either you go to jail or you go into security. Um, so <laughs> I think I, I picked I picked the safe one, <laughs> and. Um, yeah, so that was my 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 interest to to start with, and um, then I uh, you know went to went to college. I studied politics actually, so nothing to do with computer science. But I saw a book uh, in the library that kind of piqued my interest, and that was Bruce Schneier's Applied Cryptography. Uh, and so I, I read through that. I didn't understand the math, but I understood kind of like the, the vague concepts, you know, um, because as a political science student, you don't do a lot of math. And uh, then later I went to uh, back to Germany and uh, started working there in a startup that ultimately got acquired by PGP, Pretty Good Privacy. You might remember that back uh, back in the days. And so I'm I'm very familiar with Alice and Bob, um, your your uh, good friends. Uh, Charlie sometimes dropped in. Eve, we didn't like that much, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> yeah. So uh, so that was that was that time. And then uh, I moved on uh, another crypto company, uh, then uh, to Rapid Seven, where I met HD, uh, working on Metasploit. That was a completely different direction. Uh, the hackers have better parties than the cryptographers. Um, <laughs> better stories. <laughs> <Statistically> so, <laughs> so that got me really interested. And then uh, after that, I, I went on to Veracode, worked there for a while, uh, and then um, co-founded uh, Run Zero with HD. That's amazing! Like, what, what a journey! Yeah, and, and you <laughs> started with politics. Like, yeah. <laughs> what, what was the life plan then? The life plan was that I wanted to go into journalism, actually, um, and uh, I, that was really interesting. Like journalism or advertising which is like a weird combination. I, I guess it's both about communicating with people, you know, uh, and convincing, well, journalism less so convincing people, it's more re- straight up reporting and, and advertising is more convincing people. When I uh, left the UK, I kind of thought, and I, I don't know if this was uh, justified, but I thought, okay, in, in the UK, like my, my English, I didn't think was good enough at the time to really compete. The journalism schools are really competitive. So I thought I couldn't uh, uh, crack it on the, on the language level. And uh, if I went back to Germany, I, I'd lived outside of uh, Germany for over 10 years at that point. And I, 
I hadn't closely followed local politics and a lot of the entry exams are about politics and it's really hard to uh, to, to get in there. So I, you know, I kind of decided I didn't want to go down that route. No, actually never tried. Maybe I should have done that. But then I uh, ended up in a, uh, working in an ad agency as a graphic designer during the day and for a software company that ultimately got sold to uh, to PGP as, uh, you know, running marketing and a ton of other stuff. I think I was like the only person who wasn't coding. So, so <laughs> pretty much everything else. And then I, I, I learned a, tough, a ton about uh, security as well and um, have been in security ever since. I think one of the reasons we like having people like yourself on as a guest is you're a true hacker. You, you know, if you look through your blog and your Twitter feed, you have lots of interests. I've seen that you've made a, a hat, you know, you've soldered some electronics together and made a hat that made sure you could point, point north, you've done things with rubber duckies, <laughs> but then you've also done like technical market analysis, things with cryptography. Yeah. With that kind of mindset and all those different interests, how do you decide, you know, what's what's going to pique your interest, what's going to be your, your focus? Um, I always like to say that I'm trying to pick up all the different skills that you see in heist movies. <laughs> <laughs> your very own Ocean's Eleven in a box. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so I've done, you know, like the the one of the things um, that we're I think going to talk about a little bit later is social engineering. I've been uh, that was a, a big interest of mine. We can dive into that a little bit later, and all the OSINT side of that. I. Uh, I've had this fascination with pickpocketing for a while, and then my dad got pickpocketed next to me on a on a train in Paris, and I'm like, "How do you do this?" You know, like that was actually more interested in, interesting than how to prevent it. And so I decided uh, that I would research that, and uh, actually uh, did a talk about it at Layer Eight Conference um, that's up on YouTube. So if you Google that, you can learn how to pickpocket. And I pickpocket people live on stage, which was <laughs> an absurd experience because I literally practiced and researched for six months and then never did it again after that conference. <laughs> but it was, was a ton of fun. That's yeah. fantastic of turning that kind of situation and seeing it as a, you know, someone, family member being pickpocketed thinking, that's a learning opportunity yeah. for me to, to, to learn new skills. That's uh, that, that really yeah. is the hacker mentality right yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Then uh, one of my interests was also, I always wanted to kind of intern with a fortune teller to figure out how that works. And uh, so there is a, a book I read by Ian Rowland. Um, who, it's, what is it called? Um, I forgot, it's something about cold reading. I, I, can, I can probably send it over to you. You can put it in the show notes. But um, it's a, a book on how people make you believe that they are actually able to see the future or you know, have divine inspiration and all of that stuff. Uh, but it's, of course, all bogus. And so I, I, I learned some of these techniques. And then at a hackathon at Veracode, I tried those out on a few people and then gave a talk about it at, uh, at DEF CON. So that's also up on YouTube. Uh, and that was a ton of fun. There's a, a ton of interesting things that you can learn, not only for uh, for social engineers uh, and for your you know general life, but also how to apply it to sales. I wrote a few articles on Medium about that. So it's always kind of like where my my interests kind of take me. Um, on, on my short list is to learn how to uh, uh, read lips. Uh, I think that would be really interesting. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, but that's. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta have like some sabbatical or a, 
a TV with broken speakers or something like that before I can pick that up. So if we see you walking down the streets <laughs> with noise cancelling headphones on, you just <laughs> yeah. this is just practice. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I exactly. know, let's, let's talk a little bit more then about your journey into social engineering, and then we can maybe come back to some of the ways you can apply social engineering in, in everyday life, like you've mentioned in your your blog. So what? how did you start getting into professionally into social engineering? Uh, professionally, well, as a marketer. <laughs> <laughs> I think marketing is uh, is you know it's it's uh, understanding your audience and then crafting a message that makes sense in their from their perspective, right? Um, and and it doesn't always mean lying. Uh, and I actually think that social engineering to me is a is a set of techniques that you can apply in in good and bad situations. So I'll, I'll give you. An example, when you apply social engineering, let's say in, in people management, right? Mm -hmm. um, is that a bad thing? Is that really an unethical thing? I don't think so, and here's why. If you, let's say you had two managers, one of them has uh, read the official manual on how to best communicate with people, and the other one hasn't, right? So um, who do you think is going to be the better manager? Um, I think it's going to be the one who understands people and how they work. Now, the question is, how do you apply that? If you apply it to have the optimal outcome for everybody and move a situation forward, then I think it's a very positive thing. If you use it to manipulate people and, and do things under false pretenses, then I think it's a bad thing. Uh, that that's kind of takes me on to a fun question I love to ask people interested in social engineering. What, what do you think the difference is between influence and deception? Oh, good question, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a doozy. Yeah. I think deception is often when you either bring in false facts. Um, they're not facts if they're false, <laughs> I guess. Um, and uh, when you really distort the truth. Um, mm. I think influence is, sometimes it's a framing. You know, is um, <clears throat> is um, I'm, I'm trying to find a good example for framing. I, one thing that I learned in, in political theory was uh, the concept of a, a throffer, uh, which is the com combination of a threat and an offer. And Ooh. it's not quite that, but I think it kind of illustrates the point a little bit. It's basically when you state a fact to somebody or have a conversation with somebody, it could either be perceived as a threat or an offer depending on uh, the expectation of the recipient. So if I tell you, uh, Carl, um, if you finish this project, you can keep the job, right? Does that mean, is that a good thing or a bad thing? If you were expecting to get fired and you're getting a second chance, it's a good thing. If you were expecting to keep the job, it's not a good thing, right? And so, yeah. uh, so the the the, the recipient's uh, mindset matters. But then also, when you frame something, let me think about uh, framing. It's it's often done in sales. So, for example, you're buying a car, and the cost of the GPS, you know. I, 
I, I was buying a car and I'm cheap. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> you have a, you know, like they were trying to sell me the car on the lot that had a GPS and it was two and a half thousand dollars more expensive. And I thought, well, it's a, it's a bad GPS compared to Google Maps and I can just use my phone and have it for free. Right. So to me, it was two and a half thousand dollars. And so to me, it was an unnecessary expense. The, the, seller tried to sell it to me as like, oh, it's only $32 a month. So it's not all that much compared to like a, whatever, $30,000 car or whatever it was. And so uh, that's a little bit framing and so on. And, And of course, he was trying to frame it in a way that would make the expense smaller and make me move on that purchase and make that decision. Uh, And I was thinking about, you know, my wallet. So, um, Your original question was about influence and deception, right? So if we're if we're thinking about that, I think everybody's uh, influence can be a positive thing. When you're uh, um, talking to your your partner at home and you're saying, "Hey, uh, what do you think about going to this and this restaurant? Uh, you really like the pasta there, and so on." That's trying to influence. She might like the pasta there. She might not. Well, she probably likes the pasta if you're suggesting that and if you're framing it that way. And that's influencing, but it's not really deception. You know, mm-hmm. deception would be if, I don't know, you knew they were out of pasta or something. <laughs> I don't know. So they don't make that yeah. anymore. Yeah. And it's very much down to context, isn't it? Because in some situations, it, it can be yeah. gaslighting, can't it? Like telling yeah. someone something yeah. that, that isn't yeah. true. So. It's, it's very interesting, isn't it? I think it's the intent. It's a little bit like lockpicking. Is lockpicking unethical, illegal? It really depends on the context. Do you have permission of the owner of the lock to pick it? If so, then it's fine. It's ethical, right? If you don't, then it's probably not ethical. I, I always think of it with a bit of a frame around, are you trying to make someone have an error in their sense-making, or are you trying to mm. help someone sense-make? Mm. Mm. And that, that's but, like my, where does deception fall in? <laughs> yes, but, but then you've got to, I mean, they're making sense of something. You know, what is the truth is actually in the eye of the beholder, right? So mm-hmm. you're already implying your own value judgment uh, in what makes sense. Yes. So, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm already agreeing getting, that my behavior will change the benefit. I know. I'm gonna. I'm gonna run out of things to say in a minute. It's gonna get way too high level. <laughs> Interesting though. I f- I find this subject really difficult to talk about because there's. It's such a complex subject. Like the human mind is so difficult to understand. It's like one of the most complex machines you've ever seen. Right. So, finding language to describe very subtle differences is incredibly difficult. Yet, when you're pretexting and when you're social engineering, you're doing that on the fly constantly you're making those assessments and judgments as to what to say yeah to some extent right to some extent um so um this is probably like a a good time to talk about the the social engineering competition that i uh, participated in right so um at defcon there is a a village uh used to be called the the social engineering village now they changed names it's the se community village uh where uh Contestants can go up on stage and phone a company for 20, 30 minutes um, in front of a live audience, and they need to ex- try and extract 
certain pieces of information. It's like 20, 30 pieces of information. I, I forgot what the exact count is. And you might listen to that and you think like, oh, they're really you know, thinking on their feet and, and doing it on the fly. When, when I did it, so the, before you go up on stage, what most people don't know at this conference is you actually get the name of your target company a few weeks ahead of time. Uh, and then okay. you start a process of writing a very detailed report. So these reports are between uh, 40 and 100, 120 pages per company, where you really go down and you try to find all of these flags in, uh, in OSINT sources and online sources. So for those not familiar with that term OSINT, it's open source intelligence, which basically means like, Think of it as fancy Googling. Uh, like <laughs> <laughs> Googling with intent. <laughs> Googling with intent, right? You're, you're trying to figure out a specific piece of information from the vast sea of information that's out there on the internet. And uh, sometimes it's a, it's a simple Google query. Sometimes you need to go down several, several steps. So in OSINT, we call these pivot points, right? Where, for example... Um, I'm I'm on the jury of the of this year's um, SE Community Village, and I'm grading the reports right now. So, for example, one of the questions is, who's doing the janitorial service? Who's picking up the trash? When is trash pickup day? All of these things. So, sometimes you can't just Google, you know, Acme Company janitorial services, because uh, maybe the janitorial service is provided by the building. So I've seen some people first look up, okay, who's the, the landlord of that office building? Do they provide the janitorial services? And then who contracts with them as janitorial services, right? Or for trash pickup, they use Google Street View to figure out what's the brand on the dumpster outside. And then they go to the, let's say, wastemanagement.com website, and they say, for this zip code, when is pickup, right? So it's, it's several, it's not just a simple query. It's not like, so, sometimes you just need to think through the, the different steps of like, okay, how would I get this information? Like, what are the relationships between the different parties and where might that information be? I think that, you know, the point you made earlier about wanting to be in a heist movie and wanting to learn all the techniques, these are often the things that when you see the movie and, you know, a bad yeah. movie, someone just walks in and charms the receptionist and walks yeah. straight through into the building. But there better are movies people who can reality. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if you look at Jason, you know, Jason Street, who you had on the podcast a, a few weeks ago, uh, he, he actually is somebody who spends as little as possible on OSINT and focuses on just uh, being in the moment and reacting. I'm a prepper, you know, I, I, okay. <laughs> I will prep for anything I can. And so, so I went super deep, like my OSINT report, my call scripts were, were super detailed, but then you also have to think on your feet. So if something deviates from the script, Mm. Um, and I actually, this was actually after the competition, I started doing improv classes um, because those help you kind of really think on your feet, justify anything that's thrown at you uh, and those kind of things. One situation was I was uh, calling a, so th that year we were targeting gaming companies, gaming and toy companies. And the company that was my target was a Fortune 500 companies that makes uh, like, you know, children's toys, like physical toys okay. mostly. Yeah. 
And so I called up one of their retail locations, right? Called up one of their retail locations and went through my script. And uh, I was talking about you know, some, uh, something with their POS systems. And uh, the guy on the phone told me like, oh, does that have anything to do with like the the issue we had with the credit cards a few weeks ago where and so on and yes. this was like <laughs> <laughs> and i thought like you know in these calls you have to re number one you have to manage your time really well and number two uh, it's it's dangerous if you get them to disclose things that are confidential um, so uh, there is like yeah. a fine line of when you're starting to break the law. So I really didn't want to go there. So I had to think on my feet on like getting the situation back on track to the stuff that I wanted to talk about. So those are kind of things where you need to think on your feet. And sometimes uh, you asked me like before we started the recording, like uh, moments when I failed, you know, like uh, the, the year before I won the competition, I had a really good OSINT report, but I really, I got zero points on the calls. And that was for a number of reasons. Um, I it was Saturday, and this is like a B two B company, and like they, they didn't have any good numbers. And I was trying to hit cell phones of individual people. And one person I was trying to target was a facility manager, because I knew they'd broken ground on a new facility, and I uh, I'd found their tenant agreement because it was filed with the SEC. It was like a material expenditure or whatever. So I had the full tenant agreement. I knew when their lease was running out. And I was pretending to be from the company leasing out the old place uh, and saying, oh, we've got some new tenants who want to view the place. And so I phoned up this person and they basically said, hey, I'm in New York right now about to walk into a Broadway show. And uh, I don't even know why you're calling me. We just extended the lease three weeks ago. And so I was, you know, it's kind of hard to think on your feet. Like, how do you pivot away from that? Like, how do you, how do you keep the person on the phone, not going into the Broadway show, and how do you pivot your pretext to still be relevant? So I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I just gave up at that point and, and said, "Oh, I'm sorry, you know, like I have, you know, need to talk to my manager, etc." And I, I, I hung up. But uh, yeah, I've seen some people do really amazing things. What I, what I respect the most is when the target is actually uh, suspicious about the call and they stick to the, you know, stay in character, stick to the script and actually turn it around and then get them to, um, to disclose more flags. I think that's really good skill to kind of like talk somebody off a ledge, build rapport and again, like calm them make down. them forget yeah. that they had doubts and have them leak more information. I think one of the best cool. examples I've I've heard of that was actually the I think it was the call to the the Russian team who'd uh, allegedly poisoned uh, Alex Navalier. Oh yeah, um, that was interesting. So they they were calling yeah. up a Russian agent and trying to engineer them into revealing information. Of course, they're instantly suspicious. And what they did was they upped the pressure on him and started, you know, look, I've got a report to write. I've got deadlines. You're going to get in trouble if you don't tell me these things. And I was just fascinated to see how. He started off in a deeply suspicious place, but quickly started yielding information when the pressure was piled on. I, I think one thing that I've learned is start out with easy questions, things that don't raise alarms. And it's a little bit like salami mm -hmm. tactic, you know, like you, you go bit by bit by bit. And the, the more slices you have, the, the more they're in, you know. Uh, we all have a tendency to stick to the things we've said before, right? So if... 
if, uh, for example, you you uh, recommend this brand of microphone like publicly and to all of your friends, and then you think eh, actually they've gotten a bit, bit bit worse and they're not that great anymore or whatever. Like you actually have, it's it's going to be harder for you to admit that and to to change course than if you hadn't ever said anything about it. So and almost so, like expected behaviors there. Of, yeah. Because I've recommended it for so long, I almost yeah, expect myself yeah, to have to yeah. continue doing that. Yeah. Or, or also when you when you design surveys, you have to be careful that uh, you don't that the default answer you're expecting is not always yes. So it's kind of like called straight lining. People kind of fall into this pattern of answering the same thing again. So you want to like flip the question around. So sometimes it's no, sometimes it's yes for a certain outcome and so on. And so when you're calling somebody on the phone, uh, start out with really small questions and asks, and then increase the asks. And the reason I'm uh, aligning that with like straight lining and, and, and continuing on, on your behavior is because if they think answering the previous question or the previous 10 questions was okay, why do they suddenly think that the 11th question is not okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's almost because, too good of a pattern. So you yeah. become suspicious and yeah. Yeah. So if you're, if you're, asking yourself the question about the 11th question, then you also got to answer the, ask the same question about where the previous 10 okay. And most people are like, but I answered those. So if I don't think they were okay, then I made a mistake and I didn't want to make a mistake. So it's kind of like that cognitive uh, dissonance, I think is what it's called. Is this similar to like marketing? It, huh? Sorry? Is this similar in marketing where you, you want to buy a product so you avoid the bad reviews, you focus on the thing because um, you, that's more you, you feel like you've bias. already gone down the path? Yeah. That's more confirmation bias. So uh, where you only see the things that align with your with your expectations. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be... Um, but do you get to define those expectations by asking the question so you've kind of set the, the thing going in a certain yeah, direction? Yeah, I think it's a little bit different. Uh, I would say confirmation bias, the way you could use that. I, I know there's a lot of female social engineers. Some of them are extremely technical. And uh, they always play into the stereotype that women don't understand technology. So by saying like, oh, you know, like, I really don't know how this works. Could you help me? Uh, you know, I've got this, I, I can't figure out how to print out this resume. It's on this USB stick. Could you print that out for me? You know, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. uh, they're playing into biases in the recipient to get them to take a certain action. There was, um, there was a really good kind of example of that. I, think, I can't remember which intelligence service it was, but in the US, it was a couple of social engineers who invented a female colleague who was due to be a new starter for them. And kind of the, the whole exercise was, could they get a laptop shipped to them? Yeah. And, it, and it was simple things like that. <laughs> People have like the expectancy that they'll be you know, less technical following a stereotype. There was a bit of role influence. There's that kind of social model to say, you know, I should help people. This is somebody in distress, and like, how can I support them? And a, a lot of social proof. So they kind of went through and created a lot of fake profiles and added lots of people from the organization. So when they looked to see, oh, you must be a new starter. You know Joe, or you know this, or comments down to you know on Facebook profile pictures from company events, and like, hey, yeah, of course you must have been there. Don't you remember me at the barbecue? And kind of play play into it. I think there's. There's just so much in it that I just find fascinating. <laughs> yeah, social, social proof is really interesting. I mean, you use it a lot in marketing, like all the all the testimonials and reference marketing mm. is all social proof, right? But I, I also think there is really interesting techniques in, in how you use that in social engineering. 
Um, and I actually would love to to give a talk on that one day because I, I do think that uh, trust is something that's not really well understood in the uh, in like humans don't understand trust very well. So uh, it starts with the fact that most people think that trust is always bidirectional. We, tr Carl, you and I trust each other, right? Yeah. But uh, uh, trust is actually directional. I trust you and you trust me. And those can be true at the same time, but they can also be, you know, one trusting the other, but not the other way around, right? So that's, that's one thing to, to kind of get into your mind. Just because somebody else trusts me doesn't mean I need to trust them. And con artists will actually use that where they say, hey, I know I've just only just met you, but could you watch my laptop while I go to the bathroom, right? Um, so they go to the bathroom, they come back, and then the other person feels that they trust each other. But it's only the con artist who supposedly trusts the, the mark and not mm. the other way around, right? And so that's, that's one way to build trust, but it's built on a fallacy. Second thing is, uh, I've, I've seen trust being exploited in, in two-step kind of uh, situations. And I remember, uh, I've seen this many times, but the, the, the best example that stuck in my mind is one from a talk, I think it was Tinkersek who, who had it in a talk, where he basically said he, he went into a building and looked for, I don't know, an old lady who was clearly not part of IT. You know, like he looked for somebody who's who's definitely not IT and kind of like got the vibe from this person that he thought she's not IT. And then she, he said, hi, I'm with XYZ company. Uh, I need to do some repairs on the server room. Could you please show me where the IT help desk is? Right? And of course, because she was a nice lady, she walked him over to the IT desk and told the man, this man is with XYZ company. <laughs> he needs to make some repairs on the server room. Could you please let him into the server room? Perfect. Right? <laughs> so, um, and I thought, oh, this is actually really interesting because this brings me back to uh, my, my days working for PGP. Because PGP, you know, like uh, when we think about encryption systems today with a PKI, it's all very hierarchical. It's all like top down. You have a, a, a certificate authority that issues certificate. And sometimes there is like multi-levels with sub-CAs sub and so on. But the original model with PGP was more uh, chaotic and more like how we look at trust relationships in society, where, uh, Carl, I can sign, like, you know, I have a key that I generate, you have a key that you generate, and then uh, James also generates a key. And now, how do I know which key to actually trust if I want to send an encrypted email to? Do I know it's... Carl's key or James's key, it's really hard to figure out. So what you did is uh, if, you know, like, let's say I meet Carl in person, I'm, I understand he's Carl and this is his key. I can take my key and sign your key. It's called the web of trust, right? I sign your key and I say, this key is Carl's key and I vouch for that. But there is a second parameter I can set. And that is, do I trust Carl to introduce other keys to me that I trust. Concept of transitive trust, right? And so let's say I met with Vladimir Putin. 
maybe I trust him that he's him and that this is his key and I sign it for that. But I would never trust him to, to uh, you know, tell me that another person's key is their key. Right? And so yeah. if we're thinking back to the example with the old lady, the help desk person trusted that the lady was the lady because he's seen her a million times at her desk. But she shouldn't have trusted the information that she was bringing to him. Right? Uh, so it's th those are just really interesting. To me, those are really in interesting concepts because you can abstract it and then you can think about, okay, how can I use that in an engagement? You know, maybe I find some information online and how can I use that information to create these kind of transitive trust relationships? Sorry, we're, we're, we're still, we're super philosophical. No, this is, <laughs> uh, my whole mind is just <laughs> Yeah, but that's the really interesting part. I had some quite tactical questions on some of the things that sure. came up as well. So some of our listeners might not be as um, excited as I get about social engineering. I was just wondering if you could talk about some of those breadcrumbs you laid out, like, hey, for the you know, wh why would you want to know something like when the rubbish is going to be collected from an office facility? Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. How, yeah. How would that work in a real example? So there, there are a few reasons. Um, so janitorial services is maybe a little bit easier to explain. If I know who's doing the janitorial service, I can um, look up what the uniforms look like, throw on a uniform, walk into the building, right? So it gets me past the security desk. Um, if, I, if it was like a longer operation, I could, you know, maybe even apply with that company and get in, you know, those kind of things. Um, but for most, you know, paid social engineering engagements, you wouldn't go to that length. You, most of the time, you just go to the area where people smoke and you tailgate in. Uh, it's often as easy as that. But then once you're in the building, now you can uh, put, uh, some people call it a Dropbox, you put a Dropbox on the network, it's a little computer that you plug into the uh, local network, and uh, maybe it has a 5G card, so that phone's home, and now you have a, a, a presence inside that network, and you can hack that network from the inside without having to go through the firewalls and all the protections from the outside, right? Then you get out uh, so that you limit your time inside the building. If we think about uh, waste pickup, um, it's it's more interesting, I think, for shredding services than for waste because nowadays it's it's uh, information is usually uh, important information is usually put in the shredder bin. But if you know when they're getting picked up, then you have two pieces of information. Number one, when is it the fullest, right? And number two. If you get in a few hours before the real pickup, you can probably pick up those boxes and put some new ones in, and uh, you, you have you know that everything that's in that box is probably interesting, right? Yeah. So, so those are things where you could use OSINT for for physical engagements, and then there's also a lot of information that you could use for uh, for digital engagements or um, or like uh, network attacks. So, for example, if you know what operating system somebody's using, the browser and the antivirus uh, solution that's in play. Now you can build a, a phishing attack with a virus or piece of malware that is obfuscated enough to get past these defenses and targets those specific systems, right? Um, because you can, like typically when you, when you craft a piece of malware, you can you can test it in a lab and see if it evade. Number one, does it evade the antivirus? And number two, does it work on that browser and operating system? Depending on you know, like I'm, 
there's different attack vectors, but uh, the more you know about the systems, the better it is. And uh, oper- I, grading grading some of the papers has been interesting because um, I knew how I got some of those pieces of information, but uh, actually I'm, I'm keeping score a little bit and I'll probably publish that after, uh, after uh, we're done with the exercise. Uh, it's actually surprising that the same type of information is often uh, found with a similar type of uh, methods. So operating system, um, two ways. Most people actually find it on YouTube, which you probably okay. wouldn't expect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it's either uh, an office tour where you see somebody on a screen um, and you can just look at the taskbar, or it's a webcast um, that you know some of the people in the company hold and... Uh, you you can look at the taskbar and all, all the surrounding things, right? At the browser that they're using to share something, et cetera. Um, LinkedIn is also really good, uh, especially for the antivirus. Like if if the antivirus isn't in the taskbar on a on a YouTube video, for example, you can often find that <clears throat> uh, by looking. You know, you might do in URL colon uh, LinkedIn.com slash in. Uh, which gives you all of the public LinkedIn profiles. And then you just search either, you can just give the company name and and antivirus. But what I like to do is, um, because somebody might just say CrowdStrike on their profile and not CrowdStrike antivirus, right? So you wouldn't find it. But um, I look at listings of the most common systems, you know, most common phone systems, most common antivirus systems. And oftentimes I use like the Gartner Magic Quadrant. I just look at the top right quadrant. That's going to be the the majority of deployments. So if I just plug in those keywords in my search, um, I, I usually get a hit. I'm a big fan of old job postings, like must-have experience oh, in this yes. very specific technology. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Those are super, super helpful, yeah. Yeah. The certifications as well, I quite often see those popping up on LinkedIn. Uh-huh. Some, you know, suddenly the whole IT team shouting, yeah. hey, we've now yeah. got yeah. trained in this tool as part of a migration. And you're like, oh, yeah. okay, that's really yeah. interesting information there. Yeah. So, yeah, if someone could index Credly really well, that would probably help all of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the craziest, the craziest OSINT report I ever saw was not one that I wrote myself, but it was um, a contestant a few years back. And she found somebody where somebody posted on Instagram, they were actually not working for the company directly as an employee, but they were a contractor. And they were posting on uh, on Instagram all of these pictures. And it was, uh, it's, the re- it was like, she had 12 pages on this guy. And it started out with a picture like, oh, new job, and here's my desk. And it showed like, you know, his computer and the window and the parking lot behind it and the blind uh, that was like rolled half down, which had a picture of the full networking diagram on it. Uh, <laughs> so that was wow. a good find. Wow. Uh, then, then a few sh- snaps of his screens that revealed like some applications he was using, like email client is very helpful because if you're trying to get through spam filters and uh, some um, phishing protections and so on, the, you know, testing with that same mail client helps. And then even he was hugging a firewall, a new firewall he'd gotten on one of the uh, pictures with a model number and everything. Uh, <laughs> That's it was, incredible. It just went on. Like even like his, his car with a license plate uh, where he was stationed in the Navy. Uh, he even had um, credit cards that he'd just gotten that he was really proud of. He'd blurred just... out the numbers. He blurred oh, out the numbers, start. right? So he was somewhat <laughs> security aware, but there was a ton more information that you could glean from that. 
Uh, so yeah, it was just <laughs> it was do, you, um, do you find in some of your fun investigations you uh, you're targeted a lot with different sock puppet accounts and, and things like that? Uh, are you are you saying am I being targeted or uh, yeah? Have you ever found from? because you're in you're in the industry of of looking yeah. in that direction yeah. that people look yeah. at you? Uh, I I haven't seen that. Uh, I I am getting some LinkedIn requests from accounts that just don't look right, and yeah. I just ignore those. <laughs> um, typically, it's it's something where the the resume just doesn't align you know it might be um i, I don't know it's it's hard to explain but you know sometimes you have you look at a resume and you have to like you know you've seen thousands of legit resumes and you look at this one and you think like that's a little odd it, it just doesn't doesn't feel right like the countries and jobs and education and all of that don't line up things just don't so match. I just ignore those but I, I i think those are probably more attempts for cold calls and like telemarketing and so on than they are actually like intelligence operations or something like that. I would hope that they're a little smarter. <laughs> you would think. <laughs> so you, you do all the, the open source research there. You can go out, you can, like you say, advanced Googling, you can find lots of information online on LinkedIn, which is all perfectly fine because it's in the public domain. You can go and search that. But then things get a bit more complicated towards the end of the social engineering challenges when it crosses over to dealing with real humans, calling people up. So there must be a lot of rules and regulations around this, and there must be challenges if you get collateral damage of people who didn't know they're involved in this revealing information. So how does that get handled? So I, I only know that firsthand from the from the competitions. Um, no, it's secondhand from from like you know engagements from other people. But in the competition, the company does not consent. Right, the the target company does not consent. So you have to be very careful to stick to certain classes of information. Um, so those are, you know, for example, it's fine to ask for operating system, uh, VPN, browser, uh, janitorial service, like all of those things. But you can't ask for uh, passwords, social security numbers, um, credit card numbers, uh, anything that would be considered PII about the person, you know. And so those rules are clearly laid out to the contestants and the the judges and the folks in the room that operate the tech. Like if if a target um, reveals like a phone number, for example, unprompted or any information, they just turn down the volume so that the room can't hear. The caller can still hear it, but the room can't hear it, right? So you're limiting exposure. And also, if you can imagine, like in a room like uh, you know, like with 500 or a thousand people at DefCon, if somebody reads out a phone number out loud on stage. You can be sure that at least five people in the room start dialing that number. <laughs> right? That would kind of be a, a uh, negative uh, outcome. Have you ever come across a, a person, you know, complaining that they've been socially engineered by one of these competitions? No, no, never heard that. No, never heard that. So you, oh, you're doing quite good. well at the uh, operational. I've talked to people who work at companies that have been a target, and I actually did read the report and knew about the whole thing and. Uh, kind of had to maintain confidentiality and not tell anything. But yeah, they were, you know, they thought it was all above board and all a good thing. And, you know, uh, yeah. So so I've, I've never heard of real blowback uh, from any companies. 
Oh, that's good. Like it's done with great intentions to educate yeah. and inform yeah. and, and train. Yeah. So exactly, I yeah. think it goes back to our uh, our conversation earlier, right? The intent is not to harm these companies. The intent is to uh, provide more awareness around social engineering and to uh, provide a way for the community to learn about how social engineering works. I'd read a, a ton of books. Uh, you know, Kevin Mitnick uh, was one of the authors I read a ton about. Uh, and I always got like, oh, this is really interesting and I, and I wanted to learn more and so on. But it never really clicked for me until I was in the room in the SE Community Village at DEF CON where they actually had somebody on the phone and it worked. And I could experience that live. That's when it clicked for me. So I think there is a real learning opportunity for the community and it's just, uh, yeah, it's just super fun and interesting and, and, uh, and you you see what kind of things work and don't work and when people fall down. Like w one thing that I, I find painful is when the social engineer actually has a, a live person on the line and they're kind of like, they're, they're talking around the topic, but they're not making the ask. And so I, I think when they, you have to make the ask to actually get the piece of information. It's, it's, it takes too long if you're just skirting around the issue. Uh, and and talking about like oh you know like are your office is clean and then you know you're waiting for them to disclose the janitorial company that doesn't really work. So so I was going to say like with with your experience and with your kind of I guess subject matter expertise reading all those reports and seeing all these techniques. Do you have any advice to people about how not to accidentally disclose information through mm -hmm. one of those influence operations? Yeah yeah. yeah. It's really hard. Uh, so I, I never blame anybody who gets social uh, engineered, right? It's, it's, uh, it can happen to anybody. And I've, I've seen social engineers who are very good at what they do who've been social engineered. It, it does happen. So uh, for companies, let's talk, I think we, we've got to talk about it separately for companies and for individuals. For companies, it helps to know what kind of information is out there and what kind of information is available. Um, one of the recommendations I often read in the OSINT reports is like, oh, you should ask uh, Google to blur your dumpster logo or something like that. And I'm thinking like, mm, is that really the best way? Because you could drive, you know, like, first of all, you're never, never going to keep up with that. Secondly, somebody could just drive by and snap a picture or just take notes, you know, like th that's, that doesn't really get to the heart of the problem. I think it's more important to have very clear processes on, for example, how to authenticate somebody over the phone uh, using non-public information. And mm -hmm. you'd be surprised because even, you know, businesses like the, the big credit bureaus are terrible at this because they ask you a lot of knowledge-based questions about like, oh, what was your first car and where did you have this mortgage and what street did you live on that are all more or less Googleable. And so these are not good pieces of information to authenticate somebody. So those need to be excluded in the processes and you need to have a clean process of what are the ways that you can authenticate somebody? What is a safe path? And I think that helps a ton. So having good processes and training people to stick to those processes. Cool. And I, I started to think as well from, from some of your open source intelligence gathering, 
how would organizations think about that in the digital domain? There's obviously one thing like and social engineering a human, but what what bits of information are, are typically out there and how do you kind of leverage that information for for I guess gain? Oh my god, yeah. Um I mean if if you have talked to anybody who's a pen tester or in a in a bug bounty, like the the first step of a of a pen test is recon, right? And some of that can be OSINT, uh, where you take information that's already out there, and some of it can be active uh, scanning. So some people use Nmap, some people use like uh, Run Zero, like our uh, product and so on, for that. But uh, uh, or uh, a DNS dumpster, well, I guess that's OSINT, right? Because it's already scanned, it's already ingested, so you're not making an active outreach to, to, the, um, to the target. But just looking at subdomains, for example, you can tell a ton of what infrastructure a company has, and it, it's, it's so hard to hide. If you type in any company name .octa.com, you see if they're using Okta because you're getting to their SSO a sign-on page, right? So I think you're leaking a lot of that information. It's actually very hard to uh, to hide that. I think you can do those kind of discoveries yourself, do recon on yourself, do OSINT on yourself, clean up some of the most egregious things. But ultimately, you have to live with the fact that some of that is out there and can be leveraged against you. And then you need the processes to protect that information being leveraged against you. Yeah, I I always think as well then, at what point do you cross over from kind of passive reconnaissance into active scanning with, with, with digital? Like, yeah. how, do, how do you feel on that? <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I think for a pen tester, it doesn't matter that much. For things like a competition where you have rules of what information is acceptable and not, it's uh, you need to think about it a little bit more closely. The way I think about it is, for example, uh, if you take Shodan or Census, they've already scanned the target. So you're not initiating the scan, the information's already there. Um, so that I would see as OSINT. Uh, whereas if you use the tool that actively scans like an Nmap, then that would not be OSINT, that would be active reconnaissance because you're connecting to the target. The, the question though is, what if you go to the company website, right? That feels like it's information that's out there, but at the same time, you're interacting with the target. So it's a really fine line. And then if you, you know, right-click and say view source to get to some of the maybe, uh, you know, you want to see what JavaScript snippets they're using or something like that. Um, is that, I think that's still OSINT because it's kind of out there and, you know, expected interaction kind of thing. But it's, it, it gets really tricky. It gets really tricky. It's, it's such a fine line, I think, because when we think about policy and regulation, obviously it's been designed prior to the prevalence of technology. Right? So I guess maybe a great question for you is, if you were to see changes in the way we describe interactions with technology, what do you think would be important to consider? I'm not sure if I understand that question. Could you rephrase that, rephrase that for me? Yeah, so if um, if we think about kind of take a computer misuse act, right? Of hey, it's it's bad to actively probe mm -hmm. these systems. Yeah. yeah, that doesn't take into the account there are billion dollar organizations that do that as part of their day to day operations, right? We have to know what mm. we're connecting to and what we're trusting. Yeah, if, if we were to look at reform of 
how we describe what's good activity and bad activity. Like by definition, being a pen tester would fall into bad activity, even though it's for good. And wh where would you like to see change in the way that's perceived? My God, there's uh, so much education that needs to happen. Um, it was actually very interesting. I was at, at Rapid7 at a time when uh, HD, my current co-founder, started Project Sonar. And so that was a project where he was scanning the entire internet, um, I think several times a day. And uh, he got thousands of complaint letters, right? And so uh, Rapid7 actually spun up a, uh, a policy function. You know, think of it as, as lobbying, but not lobbying like for the company and for, you know, to get more, more dollars out of government budgets, but policy changes to change laws so that security researchers don't go to jail for bad reasons, mm -hmm. right? And so the, the reason why a census and a showdown and so on can scan the world today and, and uh, be relatively unhindered from that is because uh, companies like Rapid7 and others uh, and, you know, went out and educated the lawmakers and the you know, the Secret Service and the FBI and the attorneys general and all of that so that they understand why security researchers are doing that and that the world would be a much worse place if they didn't do it, right? So when you think about just a straight-up scan, like most people would say today that just scanning a system without trying to uh, brute force passwords or increment like a number or something like that is fair game. And that's just uh, connecting to systems and that's, that's okay. And then like crossing the line is when you're trying to use default passwords or uh, breach credentials or something like that, or exploitation, right? Of course. But uh, now you, you also have to think about, okay, what is um, a a security researcher, like how should we treat a security researcher who's found a vulnerability? Maybe they saw something, they thought like, oh, this looks very exploitable, let me try that out. And then they reported to the company, totally in good faith, should they be uh, prosecuted for that? Ethically, I think no, because they were acting in good faith. But like, how do you, as a, an attorney general, draw that line? Like, how do you make that distinction? Or how do you codify that into law? It's, it's actually a really interesting question. And, and, and what passes the, the test of, yes, this person was acting in good faith, right? Um, did they, uh, if they just sent an email, did they tell a friend or like, I, I don't know, like, it's, it's, it, it gets a little bit murky. I think there is probably an answer out there and individual judgment calls that need to be made in a court of law. But mm. that doesn't give a lot of um, certainty to the individual security research that are, researchers that are trying to, to figure something out, right? Then you'd, it's better for you to shut up than to actually disclose it if you're at risk. It, it comes back as well to that discussion we were having right at the start around what's deception and you know what's fair fair influence. You know these tools can be used in so many different ways, and it's often the intent of the person who's at the keyboard. Did they intend to accidentally take something out by scanning it aggressively or something along those lines? And even ownership of these things is, uh, I think, there's an 80 year old lady somewhere in the center of the U.S. 
who gets vast numbers of complaints because uh, there's an IPGO service that if they don't know where it is, they put a pin on the map near her house. So everyone writes to her complaining about spam emails that she's sending and she doesn't even use a computer. So, you know, we can end up in these things where it's falsely attributed as well. Um, just as we're, we're wrapping it up, because we're about to run out of time here, if there was one myth that you could debunk in cybersecurity, what would it be? Oh, dear. <laughs> Only one. Talk about broad <laughs> questions, right? Only yeah. one. Only one. <laughs> I think it's, it's, a, it's a really old one. And I'm talking about debunking with the general population. I think awareness is better in the, in the InfoSec community, but in the general population, I think hackers are still seen as something bad, right? And so uh, helping the public understand the, the hacker mindset of testing whether something is actually secure, et cetera. You know, the, basically what, what DEF CON's been trying to do for years, uh, educating the public about that. I think that would be something that I'd like to see more of because there's a, still a lot of misunderstanding in the general non-IT, non-infosec non public. That's awesome. I've, I've got one more question for you before we wrap as well because I've had so much fun today. Are magicians just really good social engineers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's actually another, another topic that I've uh, dabbled in uh, because uh, I... This was part of the, the, the pickpocketing stuff, you know. Uh, when I was researching the uh, pickpocketing uh, techniques and those kind of things, there's two types of pickpockets. One is like the street pickpockets and one is the stage pickpockets. Uh, and the stage pickpockets are often magicians and all of the literature that you can get and all of the videos and so on are in, in, in magic shops, online and offline. So uh, I, I went down that rabbit hole and I think there is a lot of information, a lot of techniques that are actually at an abstract level uh, parallels between, let's say, social engineering or even IT security and magic, which is why I think there's actually a surprising amount of magic uh, nerds in InfoSec. So think of, uh, for example, there is a one, I'll call it magic device or whatever, which is called a double backer. Like in card magic, you can have a card that has two backs, right? And so when you're you're playing with people's expectations that if one side is the back, the other one is the front, right? And so, um, so and, and based on that, you can then put together certain tricks and routines that create a magic effect. If you're thinking about a how to use that in social engineering, for example, let's say you are going into a building and they're wearing badges with photos on one side. The back of that is blank. So if you just put a completely blank badge on your uh, you know, zip kind of uh, belt holder or your, your lanyard, then people might assume that they're just seeing the back of the card and not think anything of it. Mm -hmm. right? so, uh, so I think you can apply those kind of concepts from magic to social engineering and, and vice versa. Or, um, yeah. I, I think there is a ton of examples like that. Sorry if I've um, ruined magic there for any listeners. Yeah, that's it. We're <laughs> spoiled it for almost everybody now. We know what a double backer is. Um, <laughs> it's been incredible. So, Chris, I just got to say, I've, I've had so much fun today. This has been incredible listening to you, hearing your thoughts and your vision and learning a little bit more about you. Um, is there anything else you want to get out into the world whilst you've got this platform? Um, may I... Uh, 
just, you know, if people want to reach out to me, um, they can find me on Twitter. I'm Chris underscore Kirsch on Twitter. Uh, also Chris Kirsch on LinkedIn, pretty easy to find. Uh, company website is runzero.com. And uh, if you want to check out the trial there to scan your network to see what's connected and do an asset inventory, that would be fantastic. I'd be really happy about that. Thanks for listening to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it.